0: Let's turn now in our copies of God's Word to the Gospel of Jesus Christ, according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Let's pay careful attention now to God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without him, nothing made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave them right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, But of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory as the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out saying this was he of whom I said he who comes after me is preferred before me for he was before me and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of His Word to us today. Amen. In this opening prologue of the Gospel of John, our Lord Jesus Christ is presented to us as the Word, the eternal Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, before the face of God, in the bosom of God the Father. And the Word was God. In other words, was equal with God, was fully divine. What God the Father was, the Word was, one and the same in nature, yet distinct persons, fellowshipping with one another." He was in the beginning with God. So from all eternity, we're told here something about the inner reality of the Trinity, of the triune God, the Father and the Son. And of course, we know from other scriptures the Holy Spirit. But this word, we're told in verse 14, became flesh. In history, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, made under the law, the Word, the eternal Word of God, the eternal Son of God, by whom the Father created everything that was made. This Son of God became flesh, the incarnation of the Son of God. 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth, fully God, fully man. And He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, John says. We were eyewitnesses of His glory, of His majesty, the glory that shined through His words, His teachings, His miracles. Even when He shone like the sun in the Mount of Transfiguration, He says, We've witnessed His glory in all these and more ways." And we're told in verse 16, of His fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. So God sent forth His Son as the mediator between God and man, as the channel, the conduit by which the infinite supply of grace and truth possessed by the triune God can flow to mankind. He's full of grace and truth, He's not just the conduit or the channel. He is the divine fountain of grace, and He's full of grace and truth. And it's of His fullness that we have received. We've received this grace. Grace for grace. Christ is the fountain of grace. There are indeed many ways in which we receive grace through Him. Now, verse 17 gives us the contrast that really sets the stage for our consideration today. For the law was given through Moses... But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the law of God is gracious. God uses it as an instrument of His grace. He uses it to convert and restore the soul. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So, we're not doubting the gracious nature of the Old Testament here. But it is the grace of Jesus Christ that gives the power to the Word of God, to the law of God, to convict us, to sanctify us. It's the grace of Jesus Christ. But today we're going to be looking at the other side of the equation, the other half of this couplet, truth. John says that Jesus Christ is full of truth, and of His fullness of truth, not just grace, but of His fullness of truth, we have all received. And it's important that in terms of understanding this word truth, that we recognize it in the context of this contrast. The law was given through Moses, but truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, in what sense is the word truth being used here? The word grace is a word that John does not use very frequently. Other than this passage, which he uses it twice in the same verse, you really don't see John using this word at all, other than a couple of benedictions and blessings in his letters. But the word truth is one of John's favorite words. This is one of the words that the Holy Spirit steered him up to use on a very frequent basis throughout the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, even in the book of Revelation. So it's a word that we have many ways of trying to understand what he's saying here, and particularly in the context of John's Gospel. But we know that it's unlikely that truth here is simply referring to something being true as opposed to being false, because the law of Moses was true in that sense. It wouldn't make any sense to contrast the truth which Jesus brings to the table with the law of Moses and say, well, the law came through Moses, but Jesus brings truth. Well, the law of God is true. The law of Moses is true. It's accurate. And we could go to many passages which state that fact. The word truth can also sometimes mean sincerity whether we're speaking not just speaking the truth, but speaking in truth. Are we being genuine? Are we being sincere? But again, we go to the law of Moses, and we find that all Scripture, including the law of Moses, are given by inspiration of God, breathed out by God. So we can't say that the law of Moses is disingenuous, that it's in any way insincere, not at all. So the contrast here is not in terms of truth versus error, or truth versus insincerity, the contrast here, in the context of John's Gospel, in terms of this particular contrast here, is in terms of truth, and truth as a picture of what is substantial. Truth in terms of reality. The Old Testament law of Moses, the Old Testament as a whole, has many types and shadows. But Jesus Christ brings the substance, the reality, the truth. Moses is pointing to Jesus, But Moses does not give us Jesus. Moses points us to Jesus. Jesus has now come, and Jesus is the fulfillment, the reality, the substance of Moses. When you think of a shadow, you might see the shadow coming around the corner before you see the person who is casting the shadow. Moses, in terms of the many historical events and accounts which point forward to Christ, in terms of various people like Moses and like Abraham and so on, people that are looking ahead, pointing ahead, events in their lives, individuals that are recorded. The historical sections of the law of Moses are a shadow. And then Christ has arrived, the fulfillment, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the prophet greater than Moses. In addition, the ceremonial law, as we'll see, I'll give some examples in a moment. The ceremonial law is like a shadow, casting that shadow around the corner. But now Jesus has come. The shadow catches our interest. Oh, there's someone coming. We see the shadow. But then the person comes into view, and we forget the shadow. And we look into the face of the person who has come around the corner. The law was given through Moses and its historical events and accounts, which are true and accurate. But they're shadowing. They're foreshadowing Christ, as are the ceremonial laws. And this is a favorite topic of John in his his gospel, bringing out these connections. We see in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there could be translated tabernacled among us. He pitched his tent among us. And that's pointing us, of course, to the tabernacle. That God's presence dwelt in the midst of his people in the wilderness. In the tabernacle, in the holy place, in the holy of holies. The tabernacle was the house, the dwelling of God in the midst of His people. And Christ is the fullness of the Godhead, dwelling bodily. He pitched His tent among us. He came and dwelt here with us on this planet, walking this earth, breathing its air and interacting with its inhabitants. He came as a human being and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. He is the true tabernacle. Chapter 3. He speaks of the temple of His body, that will be destroyed and then rebuilt in three days, through the resurrection. He is the true temple. We're told in John's Gospel, through John the Baptist, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb, and of the Day of Atonement, in all these things. We're told in chapter 1 at the end, that He is the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven that angels ascend and descend upon the Son of Man. He is the fulfillment of the serpent on the pole that was lifted up on the wilderness, John chapter 3, and we are to look to him to be healed and saved from our sins. John the Baptist again speaks of Christ as the bridegroom. John says, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom, but Christ is the bridegroom, and the church must follow him. And John says, I must decrease." so that Christ can increase. He is the bridegroom. He is the good shepherd. A picture throughout the entire Old Testament, whether it's David as the shepherd, whether it's all these passages about Jehovah as the shepherd of his people, Jesus is the fulfillment, the good shepherd. Moses was a shepherd, by the way. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He's the great high priest, John John 17 offering up his intercession for his people. The high priestly prayer. He is the fulfillment of the Aaronic priesthood. The priesthood according to Melchizedek. Psalm 110, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is the king of the Jews. Emphasized very strongly in John's gospel that that was the placard that was put above the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He is the messianic Davidic king. Even when Jesus is stabbed on his side by the Roman soldier, by his spear, he says, blood and water flowed, showing that Christ is the fountain that God has opened up for uncleanness. And that was the Old Testament ceremonial system of cleansing. There was blood for the atoning sacrifice that was sprinkled, and there was water, blood and water. The cleansing which Christ brings. So much could be said, even with, with respect to that one phrase, the blood and the water, and the water and the blood, which John deals with in one of his epistles. So John's Gospel is showing us that the law was given through Moses, and it records for us many events and historical figures, and it records for us many ceremonial laws and statutes, but Christ, the substance, the reality, the truth, has come. And in particular... John is explicit in using this language of that which is true. And he does it at least three times. He says that in chapter 1, that Jesus is the true light, the true light. He says that Jesus in chapter 6 is the true bread from heaven, the true manna. And in John chapter 15, he speaks of, well, of course, it's Jesus speaking, but he records the words of Christ where he says, I am the true vine. So the true light, the true bread, and the true vine. And in response to that, in chapter 4, he records the conversation between our Lord and the woman at the well in Samaria, where Jesus speaks of the response of his people to the truth, that they are true worshipers in spirit and in truth. Now, that's a lot. That's more than we can do today. So at the very least, let's consider the true light. The true light. In Christ, there is a fullness of truth, a fullness of the substance and fulfillment that all of the Old Testament was pointing to. And really, what was the Old Testament pointing to? The Savior, the saving reality of Christ, who He is, how He saves us, how He illuminates us, how He guides us, how He feeds us, how He strengthens us, and enables us to be true worshipers. But today, let's think of Jesus as the true light, the true light. In the Old Testament, you can see the very first couple of verses of Genesis, which is part of the law of Moses, by the way, uh, part of the first five books of Moses. You see God creating the world, the Father creating through the Word, or the Son, and saying, let there be light. The Word of His power, let there be light. Now, the Son is not created till a subsequent day. So people ask, well... What's up with this light? Is this just a figure of speech? Is this just a poetic literature, a non-historical sort of passage that we should just ignore when it comes to questions of historicity and science? No. What's telling us here is that before God created the sun, which was often worshipped by the pagans, and so God is making a point, as important as the sun is for planet Earth, and it's very important, God doesn't need a sun to provide light and warmth and whatever else is needed for the earth. The sun is a means to an end. It ought not to be worshipped. So God provides the light prior to creating the sun. And by the way, after the sun and moon are no more, in the new heaven and earth, the Lamb will be the light thereof. The Lord Jesus Christ will provide light for God's eternal world the Son of God, the Lamb, will be the light. So there was light before the sun, and there's going to be light, everlasting light after the sun. Let there be light. Jesus is the light. And that's the point that John is making here. Jesus is the light. We have every reason cautiously to view Jesus as the source of light prior to the creation of the sun because John alludes to the whole thing in the opening verses of his Gospel and says that He is the light. And we know from Revelation He is the light after the sun expires. So Jesus is the true light, the fulfillment of that creation light. He is the redemption light of His people. And inside the tabernacle or the temple, in order for the priests to have enough light to go about their business and deal with their ceremonies and rituals that they had to do, There were golden candlesticks that were kept lit. You know, they were kept lit in a constant basis, the golden candlesticks. But you know, again, it's interesting. What gave light inside the most holy place? There were no golden candlesticks there, and it was behind the veil. So what was the priest's source of light behind the veil? That's an interesting question. Some have suggested that it was some sort of supernatural light that the Lord provided. How did they see? Perhaps God's presence provided the light. But Jesus is the fulfillment of the golden candlesticks. Jesus is the fulfillment of whatever light may have been there for the priests once a year on the Day of Atonement behind the veil. And even the blessing that the priest would pronounce upon the people once a year in in Numbers chapter 6 speaks of God lifting up the light of His countenance upon His people. And again, what is that? But Jesus Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in His face, His smile, His joy, His word of encouragement, blessing His people, lifting up the light of His countenance upon His own. He is the true light. And it's so important to realize this because heaven is described in terms of light the inheritance of the saints in light. Hell is described in terms of outer darkness. What makes heaven heaven is the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb is its light. And again, you can see John's eagerness to embrace these types and shadows and fulfillments in the fact that in the book of Revelation, he says the Lamb is its light. He's mixing his metaphors. He's mixing it all together, the Lamb. The Lamb of God is the light of the world to come. Jesus is the one who makes heaven, heaven. And it's the absence of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator for his people, as the image and brightness of the Father's glory. It's the absence of God in Christ that makes hell, hell. So if we fail to understand who and what Jesus is for us as the true light, then we failed. period. That's very important. John is not just saying, oh, what a wonderful and beautiful metaphor. He's saying, Jesus must be your light. You must look to Him and receive Him and acknowledge Him and make use of Him as your light, because the alternative is darkness. It's one or the other. It's light or darkness, heaven or hell, Christ or outer darkness. Verse 4 says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. And that's the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that is commanded to be preached to all men everywhere, indiscriminately, for there is no other. There is no other Savior. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We need the light of the gospel. The Lamb is the light. We need the light of Jesus Christ who reveals God. He reveals who God is. Jesus has come to shine light upon the nature and character of God. He says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. No one has seen God, but the Son of God in the bosom of the Father has declared Him, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. When we see Him, we see who God is, and who in particular the Father is. When you see Jesus rebuking his disciples, you see the holiness of God. When you see his tender compassion toward them, even at those times, you see the tender compassion of God. When you see Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, you're looking upon the character of a gracious and merciful God. When you see Jesus touch the leopard, the unclean man that everyone was afraid, Jesus touches the leopard and heals him. You're seeing a window into the heart of Jesus' Heavenly Father, of your Heavenly Father, dear believer. You're seeing the compassion, the initiative, the love. And when you see the wrath of the Lamb, you see the wrath of the Almighty God. Jesus reveals who God is. And if we are to know God, this is eternal life, to know God. John chapter 17, that's what eternal life is. It's to have the light of the knowledge of who God is and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Well, why did He send Him? So that we would know Him. So we need to be pouring over the Gospels. We need to be thinking about Him while we're singing the Psalms. And we need to see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Moreover, as the true light, Jesus exposes sin. He exposes sin. As, as John elsewhere says, he has eye as a flame of fire, x-ray vision, and he exposes our sin. Chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That word comprehend can be rendered in different ways. To comprehend something means to completely surround it comprehensively. So what he may be saying here is that the darkness has not been able to surround it to surround the light, to contain it. Some translations say, did not overcome it. And I think it's part of the meaning. The idea here is that the darkness, in opposing the light, was not able to contain the light, or inhibit, or restrict the light, or overcome the light. But rather, the light dispels the darkness, which is true. If you turn on the light in a dark room, the light beats the darkness. The light dispels the darkness. The darkness. You turn on the lights and the darkness is gone. And that's the same here. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness is trying to oppose it. The forces of darkness, the rulers of the power of this dark age, the darkness of sin and of the devil and of the world, are trying to shut down that witness to the truth. They're trying to extinguish Jesus Christ and his truth. But the light shines in the darkness. So we can see that the light is exposing the darkness. It's defeating the darkness. John chapter 3, Jesus elaborates in dealing with Nicodemus. He says, This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light. That his deeds should be exposed. And that's just self-explanatory. We as sinful human beings in our flesh do not want to be exposed. If I have a stain on my shirt, then maybe I'm happy that the lights are down low at the restaurant. Nobody can see. I want to hide these things. I want to hide my imperfections. I want to hide the things that I do wrong. I don't want the light of Christ and his word and his convicting power of his spirit to expose me. I don't want that as a fleshly sinner. But that's what Jesus does. He is the true light. Moses can shine the light, but it's Jesus Christ ultimately, the perfect embodiment of obedience, of every detail of the moral law of God. It's Jesus that exposes our sin, even more than Moses, and really causes Moses to expose our sin all the more. Jesus as the true light. When Jesus deals with a woman caught in adultery, in John chapter 8, he deals with her, she's humbled, I think it's implied by the text, she's standing there before Jesus and he says, go and sin no more. And in the very next verse, after he's exposed the hypocrisy of the Pharisees who were trying to stone her, he says, I am the light of this world. I am the light of the world. He exposes sin. And this is a bit of a litmus test for our Christian lives. 1 John 1, verse 6. This should be very familiar to all of us. It says, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, in other words, we're willing to be exposed and through His word and prayer, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins so we're exposed and now we acknowledge it okay I did this and not only am I going to acknowledge it I'm going to confess it in Greek to say the same thing to say the same thing that God says about it so Psalm 51 I'm actually going to confess it in terms that will condemn it in the way that God's law condemns it as sin not soft-pedal yet. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And again, verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Notice how fellowship in the Lord and in His light is equated with the Word of God. You're in Christ, and He's in you, and you're in the Word and the Word is in you. The Word of God is the means by which Christ shines the light to expose our sin, and it's used interchangeably. But if we say that we haven't sinned, if we try to cover our sin, then we actually are making Him a liar when He's exposing it and condemning it, and we're refusing to acknowledge and confess. We're making Him a liar. So we need to ask the Lord, pray over 1 John 1, And ask the Lord to humble us and to shine the light. It's time for me and it's time for you to examine ourselves and to be charitable towards others and strict towards ourselves. And this is who and what Jesus is as the true light. Well, lastly, as the true light, Jesus restores our joy. He restores our joy. We talked about the light of his countenance as part of the Ironic and Mosaic blessing upon the people in the Old Testament. God revealed that through Moses, God administered that through Aaron and the high priesthood, but the true light of his countenance, the fulfillment, the substance, the reality has come in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus who ultimately gives us fullness of joy. Psalm 97, verse 11 Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Light and gladness are intimately connected throughout the Scriptures. And during these dark days of winter, we struggle with depression at times. We struggle with, for some of us, just getting up in the morning or going about our business. We're way down and burdened. It's like in Egypt, the darkness that can be felt. And there is darkness around us and there is darkness perhaps in our own soul. Jesus shines the light of his countenance to give us joy. You can see this in Psalm 4, Psalm 4, where the psalmist is, are we all dealing with much distress and difficult circumstances? We can all relate to this. He's frustrated, he's seeking relief from his distress, but notice what gives the psalmist joy and peace and contentment in the midst of of outrageous circumstances. Verse 6, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Lord, smile on us. Show your love for us. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance. Rejoice over us. He says, You have put gladness in my heart. It's Him. It's the Lord. It's Jesus Christ, our all in all. Whom have we in heaven or on earth but Him? He puts the joy in our hearts. He puts the gladness there more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. Yes, we can overcome darkness in our lives, painful, outrageous circumstances. It's not an increase or a benefit or an improvement in our circumstances, the grain, the wine, the pleasure, the treasure, but it's the light of the Lord's countenance. So my friends, understand this. Jesus is the true light. Even in the darkness, that light is shining and cannot be extinguished. And because Jesus Christ is the source of your joy, none of your circumstances can blow out that candle. The darkness can't overcome it or surround it or quench it. And the fact is, Jesus himself has said that it's his purpose that you would have joy. John fifteen eleven, and I'll leave you with this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. He has spoken his words, so open the Bible, read John 15, read through the Gospels, read the Psalms, sing them, make use of, this, of the Word of God, because he has spoken these things, so that his everlasting supply and fullness of joy may be in you, it may remain and abide in you, And he's done all this so that your joy may be full. Receive this light and experience this joy. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have given us an indescribable gift. Even your Son, your only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of you, our Heavenly Father. We pray that you would enable us to awaken, to rise up, and that the light of Christ may shine upon us and that the Son of Righteousness would arise with healing in His wings and give us fullness of joy. We pray in His name. Amen.